Oh, I just assume the whole state is presented by Vineyard Vines. Like, I'm just imagining it's like, you know, Vineyard Vines presents Connecticut. Good. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Newest Olympian. My name is Mike Schuber. I'm the titular Newest Olympian. I'm a 31-year-old man who never read the Percy Jackson books as a kid, but I am now reading them as an adult because I'm on a quest to determine if this is a book series that we've all been sleeping on as a society. But I'm not on this quest alone. I'm never on this quest alone. And I'm joined now by two folks. Ho-ho! They are the co-hosts of the Percy Jackson podcast, Monster Donut. It's Emily Garber and Phoebe Cordy. Emily and Phoebe, how's it going? It's going good. good. Hi. Oh my gosh, we did the same thing. <laughs> Look at the synchronicity, the unity, clearly co-hosts of a Percy Jackson podcast <laughs> on the same wavelength. Empathy link. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right, of course, of course. <laughs> so just to give folks a backstory in case they have not heard your podcast and they aren't familiar with you, how did the two of you find the books? How did you get into the fandom? And then how did that eventually lead to starting a podcast? So I read the original series as it was coming out while we were in middle school. My little sister was assigned The Lightning Thief as summer reading back in like 2006. So I ended up reading it with her. Um, And then the two of us kept reading the books as they came out after that. But I would only say I got really into the books in like high school after The Last Olympian came out. And that's when I got really active in the online fandom. Back then, it was only on like DeviantArt and various forums <laughs> and then eventually moved on to Tumblr where I kind of settled in and never left. So I think I've been in the Percy Jackson like fandom circles for almost 15 years now. I've seen it all. <laughs> Fantastic. Also, for audio purposes, for people listening, that was Phoebe. And now Emily is about to talk. <laughs> Yeah, so I uh, I was a little different. So I, I also read them when they were coming out when I was in middle school. My entire personality was liking Greek mythology. Nice. So, <laughs> so these books came out and I was like, oh, heck yeah, that's the stuff. And I love the books. I read them as they were coming out. And then after The Last Olympian came out, I kind of stopped reading the series, even though there were more books coming out, and kind of put it away for a while. Phoebe and I became friends in high school, but we were never like close until there was one semester in college where like we were friends and we would hang out, but we would never like hang out one on one. Our junior year of college, Phoebe actually studied abroad in Rome and I was studying abroad in Athens. Oh, look how perfectly Percy Jackson, because I think the sequel (laughs) books are Roman related. Look how you've done it. (laughs) No comment. Um, But um, so she messaged me out of the blue, like, hey, can I come visit you in Athens? And I was like, all right, I know Phoebe likes Percy Jackson. I'm going to take her on the Percy Jackson tour of like all the Greek stuff. And um, so, yeah, we hung out for that entire weekend. And once we graduated, I mentioned that I'd never really read any of the other books besides the first five. And Phoebe was like, you've what? (laughs) And sort of just gave me an entire stack of all of her copies because the time we were both uh, living in Connecticut. And we just kind of became closer friends by like texting each other. And um, for those who don't know, my background, I studied Greek and Latin. Like I studied all of that through college, Mm -hmm. the languages, archaeology, the history, the culture, all of that. 
So I would be texting her like all about that stuff. And we'd, she'd be talking all about, you know, the characters and stuff. Cause she's read these books a million times and like, you know, just knows them all so well. And we, you know, at some point like, oh, we should start a podcast about this ceased being yes. a bit and became a reality. <laughs> I love it. I love a bit turned reality. And here we are. That's really fun. That's super fun. And you did mention Connecticut, which is the reason why the two of you are on this episode. And we will get into it. I did love it was I don't know how long ago. I think it was Phoebe you sent a message. I don't know how long ago it was, but it was like, hey, whenever you get to chapter six of book five, can we come on? And I was like, huh? <laughs> That's oddly specific. We're from the hometown and it's important. Deal. <laughs> so I am very excited when we get into that. But let's get into chapter six of Percy Jackson and The Last Olympian, which is called My Cookies Get Scorched which I figured, because I always try to guess what the chapters are about before I read them, I figured it was literally about cookies, though I did think it could be a euphemism where, you know, maybe something burns his butt cheeks and he calls them his cookies or something like that. But I figured, <laughs> I figured this was probably going to be literal cookies. And uh, we, we shall see how that prediction goes, but I don't think it was uh, too hard of a guess for me. <laughs> but where we last left our heroes, we had Percy and Mrs. O'Leary riding into a shadow because they are going to shadow travel with Nico for step one of Nico's big old plan that, of course, we still haven't learned because it's a book and it makes it more interesting. But I'm frustrated. I want to know exactly what the full plan is. But we arrive here after shadow traveling. Narrator Percy opens this chapter by saying, quote, I don't recommend shadow travel if you're scared of A, the dark, B, cold shivers up your spine, C, strange noises, or D, going so fast you feel like your face is peeling off. In other words, I thought it was awesome. <laughs> Every introduction to a chapter in this book has been incredible, like firing on all cylinders. I love it. <laughs> I really appreciate that Percy enjoyed this uh, because mm -hmm. this is my checklist for what makes a good roller coaster. You know, Ooh. were there strange noises? Did my face peel off? Like... I could not stand a roller coaster hater. So this is really valuable information. <laughs> I need the loop-to-loops. That's all it's, yeah. <laughs> Just a little, a little zero G. Very important tangent. What's everyone's favorite roller coaster? Ooh, the Superman roller coaster at Six Flags New England, specifically. Not the one in New Jersey where you like hang off. I'm not a big fan not of Not Superman one. Ultimate Flight at Great Adventure, my hometown Six Flags. <laughs> <laughs> I actually haven't ridden that one because when I lived in New Jersey from ages zero to 14, I was a tiny baby in terms of being afraid of roller coasters. And then I had a come to roller coaster Jesus moment in high school where I just instantly was no longer afraid of them. Mm. And I regretted all the times that I didn't go on the scary rides and my friends did at Six Flags Great Adventure in New Jersey. I'll have to check out that Superman one in New England if I ever go, though. I've never been to it's that. It's like right at the bottom of Massachusetts. Like you cross the border and you're in Six Flags. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite roller coaster, Emily? I've forgotten the names of all of them, but <laughs> there's this one at Hershey Park that's got like a double loop to loop that's really high that I really enjoyed. Mm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I like it. I'm a big The Hulk guy at the one in Universal Studios yeah. in Orlando, Florida. I think that one's good because it's like just right at the level of being like scary without being too much of terrifying. And then I'll always have a soft spot in my heart for Rock and Roller Coaster mm, at Disney because that was like the first one that I did and wasn't terrified by. Same. I did do Rolling Thunder in New Jersey and it 
scarred me. I did Rock and Roller Coaster, and I was mostly okay. <laughs> rock and Roller Coaster is my first upside down coaster, and it was a Let's choice. Go. I also yeah. was a little afraid, so I needed to get over it. Well, there and we I go. I had a great time. Look at this. Ah. Uh, more <laughs> unity. Now we have a connection. Let's talk about this chapter. Now that we've established that we're all best friends. So Percy, after describing the shadow travel, he then describes it a little bit more saying that while he was traveling, he couldn't see anything. He could just feel Mrs. O'Leary. And then in an instant, he was in a new location. And this new location has them outside where they can see a very large colonial house with a huge yard, which kind of checks out given that Luke has turned into like a preppy college bro. So I get it. <laughs> it does make Percy wonder why Luke would want to leave though, since it has such a huge yard and it seems like such a nice place. It did make me think of, I don't remember the name of the exact house, but I don't know if anyone is a big uh, game of life player, but you know, when you buy the houses mm. and there's like the one big fancy yeah. colonial house, I was picturing that exact house from the board game. <laughs> yeah, that, that could be. A, yeah, I think that's a good image for me. I had a slightly different interpretation of this house description because this description is dangerously close to my house in almost every <gasps> detail oh especially the hermes themed sink <laughs> um no not the inside but <laughs> okay um, my house it's not white but it's light colored and it's got a turquoise door and <gasps> it's got a yard and we had a sink set out at the time and i was like rick followed me home <laughs> because i think we need to get into a little bit of our story time here okay yeah let's do it Westport, Connecticut. That's an interesting choice, Rick Riordan. Why? Why? Yes. <laughs> so just, yeah, we learned that we are in Westford, Connecticut. What is that like? I am not well-versed in Connecticut. I know about New Haven because I've been there and the college. And then I know about Hartford because of the hockey team. And I'm doing a show there in July. And that's where my Connecticut knowledge starts and ends except for any sort of mean things that New Jersey people would say about Connecticut. <laughs> Ooh, well, interesting. We'll have to come back to that. Uh, just jokes about wearing sweater vests and tying them around your neck and blah, 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 blah. Okay, that's valid. Fair. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of people with boat shoes here. I will not deny it. Mm, um, mm, 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 mm. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, I don't know, Phoebe. Do you want to do you want to start on this one? <laughs> I feel like Percy's description here is actually pretty accurate to mm -hmm. what Westport is like, which is lots of trees, low stone walls, and big houses. Mm -hmm. uh, like that's basically it. <laughs> I will say, some Connecticut people might get mad if we do not clarify that they're kind of two halves of Connecticut. Okay. Which aren't actually halves, but there's the part that's like sort of close to New York that's on Metro North train line that stops at New Haven. That's all on the shore that a lot of people commute into New York to work from there. And it's generally like that's where like Greenwich, Connecticut is and sort of like more bougie Connecticut. Although there's other there's plenty of towns in that part that don't fall into that description. And then there's sort of the rest of Connecticut, which is a lot more like Massachusetts and a lot more like okay. people like have farms up there. And there's just a lot like there's definitely still like towns and cities up there, but it's just it's a different vibe. Makes sense. Makes sense. <laughs> There's uh, evil slash gossip real Connecticut and the people from the other part of Connecticut, what they refer to as real Connecticut. <laughs> Wait, does Gossip Girl take place in Connecticut? I've seen zero episodes. No, although Serena Vanderwizen is like she comes in off the train from Ridgefield, which is in uh, it's sort of towards the north of Fairfield County, which is this part. And mm -hmm. Westport is in evil slash Gossip Girl, Connecticut. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Also, <laughs> apologies. I did say Westport and I meant Westport earlier. I will just, you know, let let my failure 
come through in the edit, Sherry. No need to correct it. Let's just leave it as it is. And I have messed up. <laughs> but I will apologize and atone for my Connecticut-related sins as I continue to learn more about it. So I guess we've we've now separated the two halves of Connecticut. Is there anything particular about Westport that sets it aside from the rest of its surrounding Gossip Girl area? <laughs> well, what separates it, first of all, is the fact that Rick actually visited it in 2007. Mm. <laughs> because there was a festival that hosted a bunch of children's authors at our middle schools Uh. and Rick was one of them and they gave talks to the students and like answered questions and held signings and I think that must have been the moment when Rick decided where Luke's villain origin story was going to take (laughs) place. Yeah if it was 2007 I guess he would have been like in the middle of writing book three, maybe, question mark? So actually, he was promoing Battle of the Labyrinth was about to come out like that summer when he did it. So knowing now what I know about publishing, I'm almost positive he was writing The Last Olympian when he visited Westport. Oh, amazing. (laughs) Yeah, I think he must have gotten there and clocked that it's like a completely opposite atmosphere from where Percy grew up, like the big yards and the houses Mm -hmm. and this like affluent almost entirely white suburb. And I think Rick probably wanted Luke to come from a place where he would come at the world from a totally different point of view. That makes sense. Which worked out because it ended up being the perfect place for him character-wise, I think. (laughs) It also explains where he got his uh, boat shoes because there's a Vineyard Vines store in our downtown. Oh, (laughs) I just assume the whole state is presented by Vineyard Vines. Like, I'm just (laughs) imagining it's like, you know, Vineyard Vines presents Connecticut. (laughs) There is one, like, as soon as you get downtown in Westport, like, it's an immediate. (laughs) (laughs) Right across from Lululemon. It's great. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a Sperry place down the street. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. But one of my favorite things about the choice to have him be on the coast of Connecticut is that these are all beach towns and it's on Long Island Sound. So no matter where you are, the beach and the water is a part of your life in Westport. And when you stand Uh on the beach in Westport and look across the water, you see Long Island Sound like so clearly, like on a good day, you can see the buildings over there. Like it's super close. Mm -hmm. So Luke, you know, runs away, spends years trying to escape home and find somewhere new where he'll be safe. And then arrives at Camp Half-Blood on the north shore of Long Island and finds himself staring right back where he started. And it's like, interesting. no wonder he was so anxious to keep moving and that like Camp Half-Blood didn't feel safe for him. Ah, and then the shore town makes sense because if I recall, he was more of like surfer vibe before when he was Luke, our friend, for about mm. uh, half the book. And then now he became Luke the prep boy. So I guess it, it changes a little. Yeah, he, he exchanged his surfer vibe for khakis and topsiders. <laughs> So I get it. But no, that would make sense if he's from a coastal town. Oh, that's fun. Okay, good. I'm glad you reached out about the, uh, I would never would have like made that connection. Look at that. I think you also need to picture like middle school Emily and Phoebe opening up the final installment of their favorite book series. Yes, I was going to (laughs) ask. What was it like? Like, were you, I guess you couldn't have been predicting it. So what, what was that moment like? I was reading the books. I was a book ahead of my sister. And I, I will admit, I did immediately get up and walk across the room where she was reading Battle of the Labyrinth and spoil it for her. Uh, <laughs> because I was losing my mind. Thankfully, it's not like a huge thing. For me, I just like freaked out. I was just like, oh my. And I had to like, again, get up and just start. Like, I was like, I didn't know what to do with myself. This has never happened to me before or since. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, you, you need Uncle Rick to go, or maybe there'd be another author, but it's something that I love that Stephen King, just in every book, is like, yup, this one's in Maine too, guys. Like, I genuinely think that's fantastic. And you just need a Connecticut writer to be like, yup, guys, we're back in Connecticut. <laughs> I was obsessed because, I mean, I know you are not a huge Luke fan, but Luke is one of our favorite characters. We're big Luke lovers. So I was so excited to hear that he was my neighbor. <laughs> For me, it was like, it like kept multiplying too, because it was like, we're going to Westport, Connecticut. Okay. And then it was like the description of the house, which was so close to my house. I was mm-hmm. just like... What is this? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I cannot necessarily sympathize with a book version of this happening to me, but I do have something that I may have discussed on the podcast, but my favorite video game of all time is Tony Hawk's Underground. And when I played this game in, gosh, sixth grade, seventh grade, seventh grade, maybe, I remember just like putting in the disc into my PS2. And when you put it in and start the story mode, it always has the loading screen of whatever level it is. And in the Tony Hawk games, it's all these different levels. And this one was the first one that truly had like a story mode to it. And you start the story mode and the loading screen pops up and it said New Jersey. And then a loading bar is going across. And I was over the moon like my favorite game franchise now has a new jersey level are you kidding me and then they usually refer to new jersey as a bad place in the game but he is from like basically camden so that's fine (laughs) but i was still overjoyed so i can uh i can relate in a different way the game becomes real (laughs) it was just oh i was so happy i was so happy i like called my best friend josh who also loved the games and i was like have you seen that the first level is new jersey oh man it was fantastic it was fantastic anyway Let's get back to the chapter of the book, because otherwise I'll talk about Tony Hawk's Underground for 12 hours. Mm -hmm. Now, (laughs) this makes Percy wonder why he would want to leave, because the house is so nice. And Nico was not kidding about saying that this shadow travel experience would tire out Mrs. O'Leary. She lets out a huge yawn, plops to the ground, and immediately starts to take a nap. Now, Spico of the Nico, he then arrives via shadow travel. Percy asks how he did this, and Nico says that with practice and a few accidental trips to China, he has mastered, quote-unquote, the ability to shadow travel. Percy asks him if he also needs a nap, which is great, but Nico says that the first time he did it, he passed out for a week, but now all it does is make him a bit drowsy, though he still can't really do it more than once or twice in a night, which feels logical and also just kind of like one of the things like, yeah, monsters can smell cell phones where you have to limit the power some way. Otherwise, Nico could just be Nightcrawler and teleport everywhere and it wouldn't be any fun. Yeah. I mean, that would be a lot of fun, actually. Uh Uh, True, true. Fun for Nico, not fun for us, the book, because Nico would be way too OP if he could just go anywhere, wherever, infinite time. I do love that Rick always puts in like all of these little like moments with so many of the other characters characters besides Percy where they like go on their own hero's journey and go on their own like training montage and just sort of come back like anyway (laughs) yeah it it truly is fun because it makes the characters feel more real but it also makes me yearn for every single offhand mention like I want to see the short story about Nico's time where he accidentally went to China and was very confused like all of these fun stories like it's good and they make the story cute but they're also too fun I want to hear all of them Rick come on give us the side story (laughs) (laughs) maybe the TV show will cover it maybe we'll get some fun Nico content maybe I've advocated in a past episode that there should just be a collection of all the stories that get 
referenced. And you could call it, now that's another story, because that's what usually Percy <laughs> says when it's a story that he doesn't want to get into. But I think it'd be great. I mean, come on, Demigod Files were great. I think there's other short story things. If he's ever, you know, struggling to get that book money, yeah. he's got a <laughs> golden opportunity. It sounds like he should just publish his next book called Mike Schubert's Requests, and then it's just a list. <laughs> And then it just kind of works down the anthology. Look, I'm not trying to ask for too much. My my humblest of not that humble requests is please come on the podcast, <laughs> Rick. <laughs> but if we then want to talk about you writing a book just for my needs and desires, then sure. <laughs> so Percy notes that there are beanbag animals lining the sidewalk. Pretty much all of them appear to be Greek inspired. And then the front porch is lined with wind chimes, which I think is a huge red flag. I don't know how the two of you stand, but I am pretty big anti-wind chime. It just feels like a rude thing to do to your neighbors to have your house constantly make noise. My backyard is full of wind chimes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> See, I'm preaching to the wrong crowd. I don't know. I'm not about it. <laughs> they sound so nice, though. I don't know. Maybe it's like a beach town thing. I feel like you need wind chimes in a beach town. Mm, okay. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I can see that. But yeah, I don't know. I just feel like it's the nicest way to basically always be playing music outside with a speaker, you know? <laughs> it is that, yeah. <laughs> Especially during storms. Like, it's already loud enough outside. <laughs> <laughs> then you have the blong, blong. <laughs> so there are wind chimes. There's brass ribbons that tinkle like water and make Percy feel like he has to go to the bathroom. And he wonders how... Luke's mom could stand this noise. Now, the front door is teal, so close to the turquoise, like you were saying, Emily, and it says Castellan written in English. And then I don't know how to read or pronounce Greek in Greek, but I did go to Google Translate. And at least <laughs> according to Google Translate, it says Fortress Commander. Mm -hmm. I don't know in your Greek studies if there's a better translation or if you know better or anything, but that's what I got. No, that's like pretty close. The Greek, if you want to hear it, mm -hmm. it's, um, I'm a little rusty. So, <laughs> <laughs> but it's Dioikites Fruriu. Ooh. Sounds correct to me. And then would you say Fortress Commander or would you say a different sort of translation? Yeah, I would. They always like ingrain in you that you have to translate it so that the teachers like know you know the grammar. So I would have translated mm. it more like commander of the fort. Got it. Because that second word's in that genitive, if you remember. Oh, I took Latin in high school. Oh, I, re I remember the cases. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I totally do the same thing where you would have to say the more formal of the to make it clear that you understood it. Yeah, yeah. so I get that vibe. I will say, coming back to this, I think it's kind of funny that you picked Greek because Castellan is from Latin. <laughs> oh, oh, I feel like I should know this, but what what is the Castellan origin? Castellan's like keeper of the castle, basically. And it uh, comes from the word in Latin is Castellanus, right. which is sort of like a Roman word for like fort or castle. And that actually comes from the word castra, which means camp, because a lot of the times the Romans, when they would conquer a place, they would build like this huge fortified camp called the castra everywhere. Um, and like those kind of ended up becoming the foundations of a lot of cities because they're pretty good at picking like strategic spots, which is also why like interesting fun fact in England, for example, a lot of cities like Manchester, or Lancaster, like all of those like castor, Chester that comes from castra. Ah, okay. That is a fun fact. <laughs> but yeah, so I thought that was a fun choice. But, you know, I love having Greek on the door. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's a vibe for the book. It makes sense. But I do like wanting it to be more Latin instead. That's exciting. I'm so excited to get to the sequel books and maybe get to, you know, flex my Latin <laughs> three years of high school that it took that I brag about. We're actually like, I don't remember as much as one would uh, assume given how much I talk about taking Latin in high school. But anyway. <laughs> do any of us know Latin or Greek? No. <laughs> uh, you know, but I got good SAT scores. Uh, <laughs> Nico asks Percy if he's ready and he barely knocks on the door as it's swings open with a very happy woman shouting Luke. Narrator Percy then says, quote, she looked like someone who enjoyed sticking her fingers in electrical sockets. Her white hair stuck out in tufts all over her head. Her pink house dress was covered in scorch marks and smears of ash. When she smiled, her face looked unnaturally stretched and the high voltage light in her eyes made me wonder if she was blind. So a very interesting description that I basically told myself, I'm just going to wait until I see exactly what's up before I see exactly what the vibe is or what's going on. And I'm glad that that was my take because I don't think I could have predicted what happened. And also, even after reading it, I don't know what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) So she hugs Nico. Percy wonders how she could think that Nico was Luke since they look nothing alike. But then she smiles at Percy and goes, Luke, very excitedly, and gives Percy a hug. So that, again, very confusing. I wouldn't say that Percy and Luke look the same. And Percy notes that she has the smell of the chapter's titular burnt cookies. And despite being very thin, she's very strong. He can feel a lot of force in this hug. So, again, just a really interesting introduction for Mama Castellan. She says that she has lunch ready. She welcomes them in, and Percy can see that the inside of the house is even wilder than the outside. There are mirrors and candles all over. There is a bronze Hermes over a clock on the mantel, and then there's a framed picture that looks exactly like Rachel Elizabeth Dare's drawing of a younger nine-ish-year-old Luke. So now I'm thinking, okay, maybe her vision was just predicting that this encounter would happen, not necessarily something strange about Luke's childhood in a previous episode, I was afraid that Nico's plan was going to be time travel to like kill a young Luke before he could take over the world kind of thing. I didn't like genuinely think that was going to be it, but it was one of those like, please don't let that be it. These books do not need time travel. I'm so over it. That's an incredible prediction. (laughs) I know. Uh, It it was more of a worry. It was like a premonition (laughs) where I was like, I see this potentially being a plot and I already hate it. I I hope this is not the case. Kronos is the lord of time, right? Yeah. Uh, Oh no, now it's not off the table. No. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Miss Castellan for sure thinks that Percy is Luke as she exclaims that she told them, whoever them is, that Percy slash Luke would come back. Brings them into the kitchen, sits them down at the kitchen table, and there are hundreds, narrative Percy reiterates that he literally means hundreds, not figuratively means hundreds, of Tupperware boxes with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches inside. And on a bunch of them, the bottom is filled with mold as if they have been there for a while. Percy describes this as, quote, the smell reminded me of my sixth grade locker, and that's not a good thing. So canonically smelly boy, Percy Jackson. (laughs) I'm surprised he didn't notice the smell earlier, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, I... Wonder. I thankfully have never had the displeasure of knowing what a moldy peanut butter and jelly sandwich tastes like because I usually eat them 
the second I finished making them. So uh, I don't know how strong of the waft would be. I don't know what moldy PB&J smells like. And I don't ever want to learn. I do know what sixth grade boy locker smells like. And <sighs> Yeah. Unfortunately, my sixth grade boy locker, <laughs> not mine individually, but the locker room, because I was a sixth grade boy in 2004. So that was like the height of Axe body Ooh. spray. Not a good time. <laughs> not a good time for things to smell like bad and also feet at the same time. <laughs> oh, what a time. <laughs> Love that you separated bed and the smell of feet as if they're two different things. Oh, I guess I, I guess I was quantifying Axe body spray as an unquantifiable bad smell. <laughs> like, I don't know how to describe it other than bad. Uh, uh, it's like bad blue and bad red like are all the scents. And then, yeah, feet are just like their own foot smell. Mm -hmm. Gosh, what a terrible time. <laughs> I, I would get like legitimate headaches before and after gym class just because there was, I mean, there was so much like, aerosolized spray in the air. <laughs> I have two younger brothers. Mm -hmm. Ugh, our bathroom at home, they'd like get out of it and you literally like, it was just in the air. Like it was inescapable. <laughs> oh no. Was it also Axe body spray? Yeah. And they each Ugh. like had to have their own like scent, but they'd like change it up every once in a while. But they had every single bathroom product from, <sighs> it was, Ugh. it was a nightmare. I can smell it down the hall. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm sure they had Phoenix and... Uh-huh. I don't remember any of them. Phoenix was the only one I ever had because it was like the least offensive. And then I know they had the chocolate one at one point. It was bad. Oh, the chocolate one. The chocolate one was really bad. <laughs> also, if you're a European listener and you're confused, we're talking about Lynx, which is the same thing, just different brand name. Why they changed the name, I have no idea. Anyway, Percy Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> so... Also, there are a stack of cookie sheets lined with a dozen burnt cookies on each of them stacked on top of the oven. There is a mountain of empty plastic Kool-Aid pitchers in the sink. And I'm wondering how he knew that it was for Kool-Aid if they were empty. Hmm. It leaves a stain. It leaves a residue. Oh, OK. Yeah, like the red or the purple hue. I was wondering, is it like the pitchers that they have in the Kool-Aid commercials where it's got the Kool-Aid man's face on the pitcher, which I always thought was like a cool thing that they should have sold. But no, okay, let's go that with that one, sense. actually. I like that better. <laughs> They're all branded Kool-Aid <laughs> pitchers. Yeah, yeah. So Miss Castellan begins to hum and make a new sandwich. Percy can smell more cookies burning in the oven. And then he also notices that there is a whole bunch of Hermes memorabilia slash photos from logos that have Hermes in it above the sink. And Percy is incredibly creeped out, but he knows that he cannot just leave. Nico then tells Miss Castellan that they need to talk to her about her son. She again insists that Percy is Luke and that he has come home. And I'm wondering at this point if this is some sort of Nico trick that he's done where he's like making Percy look like Luke to her so that she would talk to them or if something is just wrong with her. I really couldn't understand why because it's not looks. So it has to be something else going on that makes her think that Percy is Luke. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yep, the classic response of people who cannot spoil. <laughs> mm, indeed. So Nico asks her when she last saw Luke, and she says that he was very young when he left, about third grade, which she knows was too young for him to have run away. He said that he would be back for lunch, so she waited, and then she looks at Percy, addresses him as Luke, and says that he has his father's eyes, which I think is interesting because do we know what Percy's eye color is? Has it been established that he also has blue eyes? He has green eyes. That's what, okay, I thought it like was green. Sea green eyes. That's what I thought. I didn't want to be too much mean character syndrome because I have green <laughs> eyes. And I also didn't want to confuse it with Harry Potter, who also has canonically green eyes. But I thought it was green. So I was wondering, 
something clearly has to be going on because he does not have Luke's blue eyes slash I guess also now we've learned Hermes has blue eyes. But yeah, I'm very confused about what's going on and we will just have to see what the truth is. I was actually thinking a lot about this when I got to this line this time Mm. um, because I feel like a lot of the gods... So many of them, when they are restraining themselves, their true form and power is still in their eyes, like Ares with the fire in his eyes and Mr. D like giving Percy visions with his eyes. Mm -hmm. And Athena also, when she was in the Hoover Dam, didn't she also have grayish eyes even when she was under disguise? So I went back and looked at if there was any description of Hermes' eyes in Sea of (gasps) Monsters just to see. Oh, I love the research. Yes. (laughs) And um, it said that he and his children are described as having a gleam in their eyes whenever they looked at you as if uh, like they were about to drop a firecracker down your shirt. Okay. So uh, undescribed color. (laughs) (laughs) I would believe that Percy has a similar look in his eyes half the time. Mm. So. Uh. Yeah, he is. Okay. I think in Lightning Thief, he says everyone always thinks he's a troublemaker right off the bat. Ooh, okay, okay. All right, so yeah, it's not the color, but maybe it's the other qualities of the eyes mm-hmm. that is making her think this way. All right, all right, I see it. I like it, I like it. Also interests me about this part, too, is that like Percy and Nico are very different ages at this point as well. Like I think something you have to keep remembering with Nico is he's 12 right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Percy always does let us know that he looks older than 12, though, so mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe, maybe just a bit. But also, that's of the age where like 12 and 13 are very different when you're a teenager (laughs) so i'm sure he probably doesn't look that different but you're right there's a quote unquote four-year age gap because who knows how old nico aka brother of yeah fdr is the president (laughs) who knows how old he really is so Miss Castellan turns to this sink shrine and says that Hermes is a good man who comes to visit from time to time. Percy then turns to Nico and makes a can we please get out of here face. Nico asks what happened to Miss Castellan's eyes and she says that Luke knows the story but explains that she always had the ability to see through the mist so they offered her an important job. Percy asks what it was and what happened and she describes that Hermes told her it was too dangerous but she had to try it because it was her destiny. She says she can still not get the images out of her head and then asks Percy if he wants cookies. Of course we will learn the truth of this in the future. We can't learn about it right now because this is a Percy Jackson book. Mm -hmm. She says that Luke was kind and that he left to protect her. Apparently, he said that if he went away, the monsters wouldn't threaten her. She tried to assure him that they were no threat as they sit on the sidewalk all day and never come in. And then she tells Percy that she's glad that he, Luke, came home and she knew that Luke wasn't ashamed of her. So again, just a very strange situation. I was big confused. Yeah, I'm curious what your react, what your thought process is here. Like as the cogs are turning, like what are we thinking? Where where are the directions of the thoughts going? At this point, it made me feel like she was thrown into some sort of situation. It was funny when it said see through the mist and a dangerous thing. I was like, oh, did they bring you into the labyrinth to try to find? Because <laughs> it felt very Rachel Elizabeth Derry. But mm. I felt like it was going to have to be something else because it just felt too easy but i don't really know at this point and i was thinking that it was just like she was probably normal and fine and then something happened and then it's a touchy subject at least where i thought and then i was also a bit 
more in the position of let me wait and see what's going on because narrator Percy says, quote, I shifted in my seat. I imagined being Luke sitting at this table, eight or nine years old, and just beginning to realize that my mother wasn't all there. So I'm now curious if there was like a distinct shift, if Luke knew that Hermes did it. And when that line was read by me. Uh, when I read that line, I thought that could be the explanation of why Luke is so angry at Hermes because mm. we've had this other anger about it. And, you know, he, at least in the past, it was like, oh, he wasn't on a unique quest and that never felt like an angry enough reason. So this kind of put it into perspective of maybe he blames Hermes for whatever happened to his mom. And even though she just said here that Hermes warned her it was too dangerous, you know, that could be a thing of like, as us readers who want to like Hermes and the gods for the most part, maybe we're not going to blame Hermes as much, but it could be one of those things where Luke doesn't care that he warned her. Luke thinks you should have stopped her entirely. So that's at least what I have, but I don't know exactly what it could be because the answer is probably magic or a myth story that I've not read before, uh, or at least one that I'm forgetting. So that's where I'm at mm. currently at the point when I had read that line. Are we shifting a little bit of perspective on Luke as well? Are we thinking a little bit more about... <laughs> I know what the book is trying to do. They're trying to make me not hate him as much. I still do. And and I did even say in the past where someone was like, what would it take for you to like Luke? And it was like, well, if he had a really tragic backstory that I could connect with, and like, whoa, chapter six, here it comes. But it does feel like a little bit not like so much too little too late, but it's one of those like I would love to know about it earlier sort of things. I'll just have to see how it progresses where mm -hmm. seeing what else Luke did. But I still feel like the best case scenario for Luke is Killmonger in Black Panther, where you're like, you have the right ideas, but you're going about this in the worst possible way. Like, yes, you are correct that the things that these people are doing are bad. And, you know, we got to take down the current power struggle, blah, blah, blah. However, the answer is not killing everybody, dude. Come on, <laughs> do something else. So I, I see what the book is trying to get me to do. And it's probably going to work like a little bit, but I still don't. There's still just like so many things that Luke did that were so unnecessary. Just like tried to kill Percy right away with a scorpion, like tried to kill Percy in book four when Anteus just like wanted entertainment. Like there's just so many things where you're like, yeah, that was a bit much, man. So and everything he did to Annabeth in book three. <laughs> yeah. right, like there's there's a lot there's a lot of stuff so we'll just have to see mm. Percy now what I think was funny calls her Miss C which is exactly what I had been calling her in my notes because I abbreviate everyone to make things go quicker so he calls her Miss C she corrects to say mom and then he says um yeah and then asks if she's seen Luke <laughs> since he's left love Percy's conversational abilities uh mm -hmm. <laughs> You know, he's just such a good egg that he doesn't want to lie if he can avoid it. So he just goes with, um, yeah, just smooth as chunky peanut butter, mm -hmm. that Percy Jackson. So she says, of course, Percy asks when. And she says that she isn't sure. But when he did, he looked so different because of a terrible scar and a voice full of pain. So that allows Percy to have a bit of a sense of the timeline. He then asks if his eyes were gold, and she says, no, they were blue. So this narrows it down to where it had to have taken place before last summer. Nico then asks her if Luke asked her for anything, and she says that he asked for her blessing. 
He was apparently going to a river and needed her blessing, so she gave it to him. Nico looks at Percy with triumph and says, thanks, that's all the info they need. But then Miss C gasps and drops the cookie tray on the floor. Percy asks if she's okay because he's a kind, respectful king. She screams, straightens, and then her eyes glow green and she speaks in a deeper, raspier voice and says, my child must protect him. Hermes, help, not my child, his fate, no. And then she grabs Nico by the shoulders and repeats, not his fate. Nico screams, pushes her away, grabs his sword, and tells Percy that they gotta get out of here. Miss C collapses, and then Percy, calling her literally Miss C, is back to normal, and then just says, goodness, I, I dropped the cookies. How silly of me. So just a weird sort of possessed situation that, at this point, I was wondering if it was a situation of because it's talking about fate, like, did someone tell her the fate? And then did they try to, like, men in black flash her to where she can't remember it? Or does she have some sort of ability where not only can she see through the mist, but she can also see the future? I don't know. There, it's it, just more questions pop up. And gosh darn it, that Uncle Rick is good at writing, you know? <laughs> like, just makes me think of all these different possibilities. But above all else, it's very interesting and it is a very well-written chapter because the uncomfortable feelings that Nico and Percy have, it's almost impossible not to feel those as well. Mm-hmm. Like I was reading this book tensed at this point because it's just a really strange and confusing and unsettling situation. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the scenes that sticks with me the most in this entire book, not just because of the Westport part, but sure. also because it's just so different from the tone these books usually have as well where we're just kind of like Mm -hmm. dropped into a bit of a horror. Like there's not that much that's funny here. There's like, even Percy's not really making jokes. Mm -hmm. It's just this really unsettling moment. Yeah, you're you're right. That's a good point that if Percy's not making a joke, something is wrong. It's like, oh, babe, are you okay? You haven't made a snarky comeback in five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) So her eyes are normal again. Percy asks if she's okay. And she says that she's fine and wonders why he's concerned. Percy looks at Nico and then mouths leave. And then he tells her that she was saying something about Luke. And she doesn't recall it first, but then she says that they were discussing his beautiful eyes. So it appears to be some sort of situation where she doesn't remember what just took place. It's sort of an out-of-body experience for her. Yeah. Nico urgently says that they must leave. Miss C says that they can't because Hermes will be here soon and he'll want to see his son. Percy says maybe next time and begins to thank her for the cookies, but switches to say thanks for everything. She tries to stop them and offers them Kool-Aid, but they leave. And then on the porch, she grabs Percy's wrist and asks Luke to promise to be safe. And Percy replies, I will, mom, because he can't think of anything else to say. And that's just, oh, just a oof ending to a oof situation. Yeah. She smiles and then releases his wrist and they run as she yells to someone not there, the, the they again, saying that, see, I told you that he'd be safe. So at this point, before we continue, let's take a little bit of a break for our mid-roll break, the Cashed Olympian, where there will be fun sponsorship deals and announcements of live shows. I don't no, I think this episode will come out before the Connecticut show. So if you want information about tickets at the Connecticut show, yeah, come through. Either that or the Connecticut show was so much fun in the past. Yay, July 15th. What a good time we had. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Cashed Olympian pre-slash 
currently in Connecticut edition. I'm recording this one from the Shubio, but by the time I'm doing the mixing and production work and editing these little parts that I add in after the fact, that will be taking place in Connecticut. So I'm kind of Schrodinger's Shub. I'm in two places at once right now, but I have just completed the Connecticut live show, which I'm sure was a wonderful time with the Monster Donut folks who are in this episode. Very fun, the timing of the live show being two days prior to their episode debut. But let's talk about other podcasty things and updates. First off, speaking of live shows, we do have some live shows coming up in August. We have Chicago, we have Milwaukee, and we have Minneapolis slash St. Paul. You can get tickets to those right now at the newestolympian.com slash live. And I will also be at LeakyCon for all three days. My schedule is not finalized yet, but I will post about it when it is. But you can get tickets to that, I believe, at LeakyCon.com. And if you use the promo code Potterless, I think you get 10% off so you can see me there as well in Chicago. As far as podcast-related updates, just a reminder that the last Monday of July will be an off week for TNO, but I will be posting stuff onto the Potterless feed, so there will still be some sort of Mike Schuber podcast that you can listen to. We're just taking a break for the five Mondays in one month phenomenon that happens from time to time, and it allows me to work on a lot of other things. There's a lot that goes into the podcast, and it's not just posting episodes, so that gives me time to do a whole bunch of work. So that's what's going on there, and then we'll be right back, ready to go and continue things throughout August. And now that that I am getting through the fifth book, and if you've been following live show updates, I'm almost done reading the fifth book in present time, just because I got really far ahead of where the episodes are recorded, people are wondering what comes next. The plan for immediately after the books is to do the movies. We will be doing that patron-only stream that I discussed in the Sequoia episodes where me and some friends will live commentary watch the film and you can watch us watching it and hit play at the same time, and then we'll do a bunch of episodes about the movies. I think at least two per movie and then maybe some more depending on how it goes. I don't know how many thoughts and feelings I'll have. I think they're going to be strong feelings. We'll just have to see. But beyond the movies, I'm not exactly sure what I will be covering when it gets to PJO spinoff stuff. And that is where the highest tier of our Patreon comes into effect. Once again, that gets you access to the Olympic Court. You become a member of the Olympic Court. And in addition to your very cool holographic sticker that says Olympic Court, you also help me shape the content of the show. Because being the non-expert and being the person who has to know what to cover but can't just straight up Google stuff because of spoilers, I rely on folks telling me what to do. And I sometimes rely on folks telling me what to do. And I want to give the people what they want because there's no right answer for what spinoff material to do first, whether that's the musical or the Percy Jackson guide and some of the other spinoff books. So I will be asking the Olympic court quite often, usually in the form of polls, what things should I cover first? In what order? What are you most interested to hear me cover, et cetera, et cetera. So if you want to help shape the production of the show and determine what we will be covering once we finish the books and the movies, then come on down to the slash Patreon, join, and if you join at the Ultra God tier, our highest tier, you can help shape what we cover in the show and when we cover it. Now, speaking of that Patreon, I want to give a shout out to the folks who have joined the Patreon most recently. So shout out to our newest God tier patron, Lena, and shout out to our newest demigod tier patrons, Leo Lucio and literal God of alcohol. Thank you so much for all of your support. May Hephaestus bless you that if you're ever taking an Amtrak train for work, that everything goes okay and there's no delays and the train runs smoothly. Maybe it even runs ahead of schedule. Now, if you're all caught up on the new Olympian and you're looking for new content from me, Mike Schubert, to consume, I do a whole bunch of stuff. I make a whole bunch of podcasts, but it's not just podcasts. I'm also doing a Dungeons & Dragons stream with some other podcasters every other Wednesday, and it's called 20 to Midnight. We are heroes racing against the clock to save the world, and things are getting spicy. You can go to our website, 22midnight.com, 
we did just launch a Discord, which is very fun. And you can go to our YouTube channel to catch up on old episodes, and you can watch us on Twitch every other Wednesday. It's very fun. Gabrielle Urbina, our DM, has crafted an amazing world that me and Beth Air and Emma Shersharko are playing in, and it's so much fun. Again, that is 22 Midnight, a D&D stream that you can watch on YouTube or on Twitch. You can go to our website, 22midnight.com, 20to-midnight.com, to check out more. Now, before we wrap up here, you're going to hear words from a few sponsors who make it feasible for me to be a full-time podcaster. Some of those ads will be read by me. Others of them won't. The ones that are not read by me are inserted locally. So if you live in Connecticut, don't be surprised if you hear an after Vineyard Vines. Look, it's probably just going to be a thing that you might hear. It's not something that I support. So yeah, you know what? If Vineyard Vines does run an ad on the show, please send me an email to the new gmail.com and I will get it blocked. But seriously, if you ever do get like a sketchy ad, shoot an email to the TNO Gmail and I will get it shut down. I tried to get those squashed when I can. So please let me know. And thank you to all the folks who do that on a regular basis. It doesn't happen as much anymore, but it still does happen. So let me know. Once those ads are complete, we'll get back to this episode of the new Olympian. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. And we're back and we are running away from the scary porch. So they head out and they return to the cliff where they had originally appeared via shadow travel. And that's where they left Mrs. O'Leary. And when they return, it's not just Mrs. O'Leary there, but it's also an eight-year-old girl with brown hair and a simple dress and a scarf on her head like she's in Little House on the Prairie. So very interesting person. Thankfully, she is playfully scratching Mrs. O'Leary's ears, so doesn't seem like a threat initially. But Percy's first thought is, this is a monster. And I'm glad that it's only taken four <laughs> books and six chapters. But finally, Percy's initial thought when he meets anyone is, I do not trust them. <laughs> Nico, though, puts Percy a bit at ease because he says, hello again, lady. And lady does have a capital L in the book. She calls her Percy to sit, and she does call him Percy Jackson, not Perseus Jackson, which is a good sign, mm-hmm. because usually the monsters call him full name Perseus Jackson, first name, last name, so I was feeling a little bit better about it, but then she asks if he wants dinner, and that's usually a bad sign. When he gets offered food by a stranger, that has not worked out well in the past, and thankfully, Percy also recognizes this, because it looks really nice. She kind of waves her hand, and a picnic appears, and it's all this wonderful food, like a proper dinner. Percy describes it as, quote, it was the kind of home-cooked meal people are supposed to have but never do. And then he realizes, wait a second, this looks too good to be true. She even made a five-foot-long biscuit for (laughs) Mrs. O'Leary, like way too good to be true, which makes Percy think, I don't know if I should be eating this. And I'm glad, as I said, he's finally thinking the right stuff, you know? (laughs) He's finally learning and growing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We love to see it. Did you have any guesses as to... Who we might be encountering? I had no idea, and I thought that we were going to learn a little bit more about them before. So I wasn't, like, ready to make a guess right away. I was like, oh, there'll be, like, a couple Mm -hmm. of hints. But pretty soon after, we learn who it is. And then it makes sense, given the very, very little I know about this character. So Percy... 
thinks better of this. And then he just immediately takes part of his food and puts it into the flame because she has a little campfire going and he makes an offering to the gods. And then she smiles and thanks him. And then Percy is able to recognize her. And he says, quote, the first time I came to camp, you were sitting by the fire in the middle of the commons area. And she says that Percy didn't stop to talk to her, and most don't, but Nico did talk to her. He was the first in many years to do so. Then, Percy says, you're Hestia, goddess of the hearth. Now, I was wondering, maybe I'm just forgetting, did this happen in book one? I totally didn't remember this being a thing. There's like one line where he just says there's a girl sitting at the fire. That is super cool that Uncle Rick, I don't I guess he planned that all the way from the beginning. Like that is quite a neat detail to pick up on. It's sort of like a pretty big piece of the imagery of the 12 gods of Olympus. So I, it's kind of fun that I see he's like making it full circle because I feel like in Lightning Thief, he probably just wrote it to make it really like feel like a complete tableau of all of the gods with all of the cabins. Mm-hmm. And you've got to have her tending the fire in the middle, too. Yeah. If I ever get to talk to him, I would ask him if that was like planned from the beginning or if he was just like, oh, yeah, I did that just as flavor text. But now that's canonically Hestia. (laughs) I like it, though. I think it's fun. I guess from your studies, do you know things about Hestia? I know basically nothing, mainly because she wasn't in Hades, the video game. Mm. So I don't know a lot about her whole deal, except for that she's goddess of the hearth. Uh, And I was just kind of associated with like food and homely type things. There's not a lot about her in mythology. Her sort of biggest defining moment is when Dionysus, who's the last Olympian god to become a full god and join, um, he shows up and they don't have enough seats for him. And there's about to be a big fight between all the gods about like where we're going to put him and who's going to give up their seat. And then Hestia, who um, she's actually one of the oldest gods. She's There's the six children of Kronos and she's one of the daughters, one of the three daughters. So it's Hera, Hestia, and... um, Oh, my gosh. Artemis? (laughs) Nope. Not Artemis. Okay, I'm just guessing. I've just forgotten every god I know. Anyway, but she's like the female big three, basically. Okay. And I believe she's a maiden goddess as well, so she's not married to anybody or anything. Mm -hmm. I've Googled it, and the other daughter of Cronus is Demeter. I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) She ends up being the one. She They're all about to get in this huge fight, and she basically just calmly gets up and says, he can have my chair. That's fine. I'm the goddess of the hearth. I'm going to tend the fire anyway, because that's what I normally do anyway. I'm never sitting in this chair. So she's sort of the peacemaker. So she's the one who's always sort of keeping Uh. everything together, tending the hearth which in a lot of mythology and like symbology in general is sort of the center of the home. It's where the meals are. It's where people gather. If you think about it historically for warmth, it's sort of like all of that she kind of embodies. Cool, cool. I like it. All right. Narrative Percy, when describing her, says that she looks eight years old and he didn't ask any questions about it because he's learned that the gods can look any way they pleased. So he's just kind of letting her live her own truth. Nico asks why she isn't with the other Olympians fighting Typhon, and she says that she is not really one for fighting. And then she says that someone has to keep the home fires burning while the other gods are away. So Percy asks if that means that she is guarding Olympus, and she says that guard might not be the most correct description. But then she says that if you ever need a warm place to sit and have a home-cooked meal, you are welcome to visit. And then she encourages him to eat. And I love narrative Percy's description of the quote, my plate was empty before I knew it. Nico scarfed his down just as fast. Food apparently was amazing, and then she asks if he had a good visit with May Castellan, and 
for a second, Percy had forgotten about it. And then he instantly remembers, oh, right, I just had a really bad time. Uh, So he asks if Hestia knows what's wrong with her. And she explains that she was born with a gift being able to see through the mist. And Percy says, yeah, just like my mother. And then he thinks like Rachel, but he doesn't say it out loud because I guess Hestia might tell Annabeth or something. (laughs) I don't know why he necessarily kept that inside. But he specifically asks about the glowing eyes situation. Hestia explains that some bear the curse, and she calls it a curse of sight, not a gift of sight, which I thought was interesting. She says that some bear the curse of sight better than others. She says, quote, for a while, May Castellan had many talents. She attracted the attention of Hermes himself. They had a beautiful baby boy. For a brief time, she was happy. And then she went too far. So just a very ominous way to describe it. Percy recalls her saying that she was offered this job. He thinks that's what Hestia must be referring to. And then he explains to Hestia that she was very happy and personable, but then all of a sudden started just freaking out about her son's fate. And he's wondering if something specifically divided her like that. And this makes Hestia saddened, and she says that it's a story that she doesn't like to tell, but she says that May saw too much. And she says that if he wants to understand Luke, you have to understand his family. So again, similar to what Nico said, we have to learn his past. Mm -hmm. So it feels like Nico was planning this, and it wasn't just like Hestia showed up. That's at least what I was thinking when I read this. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting, these two scenes together for me, because of how different they are. Mm-hmm. And also, like, bringing up this idea of Hestia being this embodiment of home and the contrast of just coming from Luke's home as well. Right. That's a really good point. It's interesting as well, this this all this emphasis on the past and on home that I think comes up a lot um, in this series, but especially in this part of this book right now. The contrast to me also really, really solidifies the difference in, like, the place where Luke grew up and how it maybe never super felt like a home to him mm. because of everything going on. And it's also really interesting to me as well, because getting into a little bit more of like the interesting classics bit, or at least interesting to me, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of weird idiosyncrasies that kind of feel almost like culty, I feel like, in the May Castellan home. Ooh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the wind chimes and all of that. But one of the things that might also escape notice if, to people who haven't um, done a lot of classical studies is all of these images of Hermes used to be a way people would ward off evil, especially Uh. in ancient Athens. There were these things called herms. Oh, okay. Which in their most simple form, this is the part where I might be talking about things that are maybe not the most safe, but they're fine. They're not, but I'm going to be using the word penis. It's fine. (laughs) Skip ahead if you need to. (laughs) (laughs) But basically there are these, these stone cairns of rocks, like piles of rocks or stone carving rocks that would also have penises on them because um, the penises ward off evil. Okay. Which is a real thing in the ancient world. All right. But all of these kind of pieces of just like keeping the evil out and all this like kind of cultiness and weirdness and like that kind of all coming together in like basically the horror movie chapter of this book. Mm -hmm. And then just immediately contrasted with this like feeling of warmth and like home. Yeah. Just thinking about like how this kind of comes into play with all of our characters. Yeah, very well said. Totally makes sense. And it makes Percy think about the home life of Luke because he's wondering what Luke's home life was like. At what point did things go wrong with his mom? And was he scared by these visions? Did these things happen where she got into sort of screaming fits like she did to Percy and Nico? 
And then he's wondering how often did Hermes visit and did it feel like Luke was alone? So Percy out loud to her says, you know, it's no wonder why Luke ran away. He still doesn't think that it was right for him to leave his mom, but he was just a kid. And he really thinks that Hermes should not have abandoned them. And Hestia tries to caution Percy to say that it can be easy to judge others, but then asks if he's going to follow Luke's path and seek the same powers. That causes Nico to put down his plate, and he says that they don't have a choice. It's the only way that Percy stands a chance. All Hestia says is, mm, <laughs> which is a classic response. Hestia is also avoiding spoilers. <laughs> I was going to say, this is something that I can very much relate to. Then she opens her hand and the fire roars. The flames shoot up about 30 feet into the sky and Percy feels the rush of heat on his face and then it quickly dies back down to normal. She looks at Percy and says that not all powers are spectacular and that sometimes the hardest power to master is the power of yielding and then asks Percy if he believes her. He gives her a very confident "Uh uh-huh but (laughs) as narrator reveals that it was just anything to get her to not do the flame powers again, which a very understandable vibe. This is one of my favorite lines that she says to him, because I feel like this is actually something that Percy struggles with sometimes is that like tugging Mm -hmm. in his gut when he pushes his powers too far and like cleaning the stables in Battle of the Labyrinth. Mm -hmm. And it's also that and the volcano explosion thing. too, Yeah. (laughs) And that impulse toward like anger and acting on it before thinking on it. So I appreciate that we're planting this idea in his head before he's like or while he's preparing for war. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's definitely good to hear it from a god because so far the only thing that we had with him worrying about it was those two instances where he's just worried that he almost lost control. So now to directly hear from someone on Olympus really kind of drives home, hey man, you have a lot of power, but also that doesn't necessarily mean it can always be good. So yeah, you're totally right. So Hestia then smiles and says that Percy is a good hero and he's not too proud, but he still has a lot to learn. She says, as you explained earlier, Emily, that when Dionysus was made a god, she gave up her throne for him and it was the only way to avoid a civil war taking place between the gods. And then Percy recalls, I guess from his classes and stuff, that it unbalanced the council and now there were seven gods and five goddesses. She kind of shrugs this off, just saying that it was the best solution, not necessarily the most perfect solution. And now she tends the fire. She says that no one will ever write epic poems about the deeds of Hestia. Most demigods don't even stop to talk to me, but that is no matter. I keep the peace. I yield when necessary and asks Percy if he can do the same. So, I mean, she seems like a very level-headed goddess, which I think is nice because we've seen our fair share of gods be very self-centered and emotional and all this, she seems incredibly level-headed and rational, which I think is a nice change of pace from some of the other folks on Olympus we've met so far. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Ah, mm, indeed. (laughs) She asks Percy if he can do the same. Percy says he doesn't know what she's talking about. And she says, perhaps not yet, but soon, which she's, uh, I mean, I get that it's only chapter six and this is exactly what happens in (laughs) chapters five through seven of every Percy Jackson book, which is like, we've met a God. They've said some things, but not enough. (laughs) They may or may not have given us food. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, true. Gosh. Yeah. That's very much a parallel to, I mean, my vibes here of Hestia are way better than Hera, but this is pretty similar. It was probably about chapter six in book four where, Hera came in, gave them food, but then the vibes were way worse. But she also was pretty vague about what lies ahead. (laughs) So she asks Percy if he will continue his quest. 
he doesn't answer, but just asks her if that's why she's here to try to stop him. Mm -hmm. And she shakes her head and says that she is here because when all else fails, when all the other gods have gone off to war, she is all that remains home hearth. She is the last Olympian. And I was like, Oh, she said the thing. (laughs) (laughs) And she says that Percy has to remember him when he faces his final decision. And he does not like the way she says final, but I thought this was really interesting because Obviously, when I started this whole podcast, I knew that The Last Olympian was the name of the fifth book, Mm. and I had no idea to what that referred. And I guess my initial thought would be, similar to the Dionysus situation, that maybe Percy becomes an Olympian, and then he is The Last Olympian. But for this to be more centered on Hestia, someone that we have not really had any experience with throughout the series, I thought it was really interesting. Very, very interesting. So, Mm. I don't know. I'm, I'm, again, I'm just in a situation where like at this point don't really know what's going on, but it's like a fun don't really know what's going on. It's very exciting. It's just so different from what I anticipated the last Olympian meaning. I think it's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I'm very excited for whatever lies ahead. I love all the ominous mentions of the fates, the end. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's getting, it's getting good. It's getting spicy. (laughs) Percy looks at Nico and then he looks at Hestia and he says that he has to continue, that he has to stop Luke. I mean, Kronos, which valid, correct way. It's always confusing to call him Luke or Kronos. And I can't blame Percy for calling him Luke, given that he just had an experience with Luke's mom and is thinking about Luke in his pre-Kronos days. So I understand there for sure. Hestia says that she can't be of much help beyond what she has already said, but she does say that since Percy sacrificed to her, he can return him to his home. And then she says that she will see him again on Olympus. Narrative Percy letting us know that her tone was ominous, as though their next meeting would not be a happy one. She then waves her hand and everything fades, and then suddenly, Percy is home. And when he said home, I thought, oh yeah, cool, Camp Half-Blood. Uh-oh, plot twist. We are in a different home. Mm-hmm. He's at Sally's apartment in the Upper East Side, and he says that that is the good news, but then there's bad news that the rest of the living room was occupied by Mrs. O'Leary. <laughs> Incredible. We then hear a muffled yell from the bedroom, and it's Paul Blofus saying, who put this wall of fur in the doorway? Of course, Sally <laughs> wonders if Percy has done something. She asks if he's here and if he's okay. He shouts back that he's here. Mrs. O'Leary shouts with a big old woof. And then she tries to turn in a circle to find Sally, knocks down all the pictures off the wall. And apparently she had only met his mom once before. And then he in parentheses says, long story, but she loves her. Is this a reference to something we know? Or is this another example of story that I need to learn more about when Uncle Rick writes a book just for me? I don't think (laughs) <laughs> this has ever come up. <laughs> okay. I didn't think so either. This book in particular, there's just been so many things where I'm like, wait a second, what are you talking about, Percy? We need to, like, I want to know. <sighs> I mean, a lot of time passes between the end of Battle of the Labyrinth and the beginning of this book, so. Yeah, and Sally never ran into Mrs. O'Leary in the third Demigod file story, which is the only one that Mrs. O'Leary was in. Mm-hmm. Maybe they just take her on a nice walk or something. Sally brings some sandwiches. I'm picturing a nice picnic, you know? <laughs> yeah, long story, but the subtext, it's, it's a long story, but it's a really nice and pleasant long story. <laughs> you don't want to hear about that. <laughs> <laughs> so they 
talk about the details and sort some things out. And the narrator Percy says, quote, after destroying most of the furniture in the living room and probably making our neighbors really mad, we got my parents and he called them his parents. I really like this. We got my parents out of the bedroom and into the kitchen where we sat around the kitchen table. Mrs. O'Leary still takes up the entirety of the living room, but at least she settled in a way where she can see them and she isn't actively destroying things. Sally then gives her a 10-pound family-sized tube of ground beef. Did Sally have that on hand? Costco. For other reasons? Maybe. I didn't well, know yeah, that I they know, sold like, them like that. <laughs> I just, I've never seen a family-sized 10-pound tube. I don't know if this was Maybe in this case Mrs. Texas O'Leary thing. showed up. I, I, I mean, look, I even I've, li- I've, <laughs> I've lived in Texas for 10 years. I'm coming to you live from my sister's old bedroom at my parents' house in Texas. I have never seen a 10-pound tube. <laughs> tube of ground beef. (laughs) So I don't know, but Mrs. O'Leary eats it in one bite because she's an absolute champ. And then Mr. Blowfist, poor, yeah, I guess I did. What's the last name situation? Is she Sally Jackson Blowfist now? Did he take her last name? I'm, I need to know all the details about the wedding, the engagement, the new marriage. Like I want to know so much about the family dynamic now. I just love that Percy called them his parents. I think it's so sweet. I feel like it's a very like 16-year-old boy Percy thing to be like, you don't want to hear about that. Who cares? Yeah, (laughs) boring, mushy love. Gross. Paul's just my dad now. Get over it. Maybe that's where they met Mrs. O'Leary. Like she was one of those dogs (gasps) at the wedding. (gasps) She was the ring bearer dog. (laughs) We need it. We need it. I have already advocated for the wedding story, but now if this, yep, mm -hmm, yep, we got to make it happen. Rick, let me know. Disney books, hit me up. Let's go. Paul pours lemonade for everyone else. Percy explains the visit to Connecticut. And then Paul says, so it's true. And he stares at Percy like he's never done before. He's apparently wearing a white bathrobe, but it is covered in hellhound fur. He's got his salt and pepper hair sticking up in every direction. Quote, all the talk about monsters and being a demigod, it's really true. Then I was thinking, wait a second. (laughs) Have they not told Paul yet? But the narrator Percy says that last fall he had explained to Paul who he was. Sally backed it up. And Percy guesses that he didn't really think it was real until this moment. So I'm glad. And I still, speaking of stories I want to hear, I want to hear how that went. Like, there's so many things. Like, I do appreciate that things move along in these books, but also, like, everything that gets kind of glossed over sounds fascinating. I do like that, like, he's explained all of the stuff that happened in Battle of the Labyrinth to Paul, but it's, he went to Connecticut. (gasps) I believe you. (laughs) (laughs) There's no other reason anyone would go to Connecticut. (laughs) (laughs) Especially that part. <laughs> yeah. Hartford. <laughs> or not Hartford. Sorry. What's it? I've already Westport. <laughs> Westport. <laughs> Percy apologizes about Mrs. O'Lear destroying everything. Paul laughs it off, saying, are you kidding? This is awesome. I mean, when I saw the hoof prints on the Prius, I thought maybe, <laughs> but this. And that also made me think, okay, if you didn't believe Rachel, when Rachel said a Pegasus destroyed the hood of the car, what did you think happened? Like, that's such a specific dent that it wouldn't be caused by a car accident or him running into a pole or something honestly it's like new york city i'd believe it you know who knows what's running around out there it's true it's true i do have a lot of questions for paul blowfist slash blowfist jackson slash jackson slash jackson blowfist but we need to continue on he pats mrs o'leary and the living room shakes which percy describes as either meaning that the swat team was breaking on the door or mrs o'leary was wagging her tail which i'm guessing it was 
Percy can't help but smile, thinking that Paul is a pretty cool guy, even if he was his English teacher as well as his stepdad. Again, another fascinating thing, that Paul is specifically teaching Percy's English class at Good Within E High School. (sighs) There's there's so many things. There's so many things I want to know about. I wonder if they're reading the Odyssey. That'd be great. And that, yeah, that would be funny if that was, a, that's why you get hundreds on all the Odyssey tests. I lived it. <laughs> Percy thanks Paul for not freaking out, but Paul corrects him that he is freaking out, but he just also thinks that it's awesome on top of the freaking out that he's doing. Percy then says, eh, well, you might not be so excited when you hear what's going on. So then he tells Paul and Sally about Typhon and the gods and the battle that's about to come. And then also Nico's plan. And at this point, I was like, Percy, if you don't, describe Nico's full plan at this point. I'm going to be so mad, but also I will understand because it's a book, but also come on, give it to me. So I was very much on the edge of my seat when he said this. And then as the narrator, he just says, my mom laced her fingers around her lemonade glass. She was wearing her old blue flannel bathrobe. What a vibe. Mm -hmm. And her hair was tied back. Recently, she'd started writing a novel. And I was thinking, is this, is that what we're reading? Like she'd wanted to for years. And I could tell that she'd been working on it late into the night because the circles under her eyes were darker than usual. Just mm. First off, now I understand even more why you guys would want to do chapter six. But also I told someone before recording today that I was doing chapter six of book five and they were like, ooh, chapter six is good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is it living up to the hype? <laughs> it's living up to the hype. This is, I, it's compelling. Apparently behind her at the kitchen window, there is the silvery moon lace still glowing in the flower box. So Percy, as the narrator, explains the whole Calypso thing in case you skip the first four books. Sally takes a deep breath and then just fast forwards and doesn't explain the plan, which made me very sad. She just tells Percy that it's dangerous even for him. Percy says he knows and that he could die. Nico explained that to him already, but just thinks that if they don't try, and Nico finishes his sentence saying, we'd all die. He says to Sally that they don't stand a chance against an invasion and there will be an invasion. Paul asks if there will be an invasion of New York and how that would even be possible. Wouldn't people be able to see the monsters? And Percy says that he's not really sure. He doesn't fully understand how Cronus could just march into Manhattan, but he does say that the mist is strong. And, you know, we've seen people not be keen to what's going on in vague Midwest city that Percy couldn't identify. So maybe that'd be the same thing if Typhon and the Titans come into New York. Nico then says to Sally that Percy needs her blessing. So, okay, we had going to a river with Luke. I guess we're going to go to a river. I was thinking, like, is it the River Styx or some other ominous river in the underworld? And now we have a situation of it seems like a parallel. So Nico says that Percy needs the blessing of Sally and the process has to start that way. And he wasn't convinced until they had met Miss C, but now he is 100% certain that that has to be the case. Apparently this has only been done successfully two times prior and both times that it worked, the mother gave their blessing because she had to be willing for their son to take this risk. Mm. Again, incredibly ominous. Well, well, some some breadcrumbing in there, Rick. Wonder what they're going to do. We'll have to see. (laughs) She asks if they really want her to bless this wild plan. Percy says that they can't do it without her. And then she says, and if you survive this dot, 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 this process in italics, Percy says, then I go to war, me against Kronos, and only one of us will survive. Percy is sure not to explain to her the entire prophecy about the whole soul reaping and the end of his days, thinking that she doesn't need to know about that, but she does need to know about Percy's 
desire and need to be able to stand up to Kronos. She says that Percy's her son and that she can't just, but then he, as the narrator reveals to us, that he realizes that he's going to have to push her a bit harder if he wants her to agree, but he also doesn't want to because he thinks about Miss C waiting for her son to come home and he realizes that he's really lucky to have a mom as great as Sally. She's always been there for him. She always tried to make things normal for him, even when there are gods and Greek things going on in his life. She tolerated him going out on adventures and missions and quests, but now he's asking her to do something that's probably going to get him killed, and he realizes that that's a pretty big ask. Mm. Percy then locks eyes with Paul, and then they have some sort of nonverbal understanding that goes on between the two of them. And then Paul puts his hand on Sally's shoulders, and he says that he can't act like he knows what exactly is going on and what they've gone through in the past, but this situation sounds like Percy is doing something noble, and he wishes that he could be as brave as Percy is being right now. Percy gets a lump in his throat, which I think is really sweet. He says that he doesn't get compliments like that often, and uh, I, I I'm love... Percy. Uh, <sighs> literally just hearing it recounted right now, I'm like, oh God. <laughs> <laughs> Paul is so sweet. I'm so glad that he's not secretly evil. I just love how much Percy and Paul love each other. It's mm. wonderful. It's just truly wonderful. Yeah, it's it's really rare to see good parent-child relationships in these books. So it really... It's nice. It's nice. It's really nice. It's really refreshing. Speaking of refreshing, Percy's mom is staring at the lemonade, and she looks like she's about to cry. But then she does end up giving Percy her blessing, and Percy, as the narrator says, that he doesn't feel any different, like there's no sort of magic glow in the kitchen or anything like that. Percy looks at Nico. Nico looks anxious, but then he nods and says, it's time. Sally then asks Percy for one last thing asks him that if he does survive the fight with Kronos, that he will send her a sign. And then she goes through her purse and hands him her cell phone. And then Percy says, I can't use this. And she says, I know, but just in case, if you're not able to call, maybe a sign that I could see from anywhere in Manhattan to let me know you're okay. And then Paul, big old history buff, says like Theseus, quote, he was supposed to raise white sails when he came home to Athens. And then Nico, who is also well-versed in this story, says that he forgot. And then his father jumped off the palace roof in despair <laughs> and then says, but other than that, it was a great idea. <laughs> so then Sally suggests, OK, what about a flag or a flare, something from Olympus, the Empire State Building? And then he says something blue. And then I thought, A, that's fitting. And B, now I understand why the Empire State Building's Twitter account hypes up them turning blue so much. I'm wondering <laughs> if this ends in them lighting up blue. And I wonder if this was at a time where the Empire State Building didn't get lit up in colors as much because now the Empire State Building lights up in colors all of the time for all different occasions. I don't know if they did this in 2010 or whenever this book came out, but it would be an interesting thing if that was like the plan and then Sally would just be like, oh, what's it blue for? Because it's blue quite often these days. And you can go to like a website where you can see like, why is the Empire State Building this color? And it'll be like, oh, it's, you know, Cookie Monster's 50th birthday or whatever. <laughs> a great occasion. <laughs> they have done Sesame Street things in the past. But yeah, I, I will have to see like the history of the ESB. But I'm wondering if that's what the book will end in or at least after the fight. And uh, it's pretty cool. I like it. And I hope that, you know, maybe one day I can do a partnership with the Empire State Building, you know? We can oh, work wow. together and do a thing. <laughs> that would 
be great. I'll just keep tweeting at them and hope something materializes, speaking into existence. That's also kind of fun because in one version of the Theseus myth, at least, it's actually, uh, he doesn't jump off a palace roof. He jumps off the temple of Cape Sunion, which is a temple to Poseidon. That's like an hour outside of Athens. That's on like these big cliffs oh. and it's really cool, which I actually took Phoebe to when we were in Greece. <gasps> That's so cool. <laughs> it is very cool. That's awesome. <laughs> I think that was your Instagram caption, if I recall correctly. Oh, yeah. I posted pictures of me in the water with Theseus's dad died here as the caption. <laughs> oh, no. What a beautiful place and a sad story. Well, speaking of that, Sally is on board for the plan. She says that she will wait for a blue signal and that she will try to avoid jumping off palace roofs. In the meantime, she gives Percy a big hug. Percy really tries to make this not feel like he was saying goodbye. He then shakes hands with Paul. So I guess they're not on hug terms yet, but I hope they can work towards that goal. And then Percy and Nico walk to the kitchen doorway. They look at Mrs. O'Leary. Percy apologizes and then says it's shadow travel time again. She whimpers, crosses her paws over her snout, which I guess is a dog sign for I don't want to do this. I'm not well versed in dogs. Is that like a please don't do this to me universal sign from pets? Maybe for like cartoon dogs. I can't imagine a <laughs> dog doing that. <laughs> I feel like I've seen that before. <laughs> yeah, just like, oh, I don't want to do it. Yeah, okay. Percy asks Nico, where are we going now, Los Angeles? And Nico says, no need. There's a closer entrance to the underworld. And that's the end of chapter six and the end of this episode of The News Olympian. I'm very intrigued to see where the closer entrance to the underworld is. Where will it be? Will it be Boston? Who's to say? <laughs> but that is the end of this episode. So... Emily and Phoebe, thank you so much for joining. This was a blast. I am so glad that we were able to talk about things, not only just Connecticut expertise, but other expertise with the Greek and Latin studies and stuff. This was super fun. Thank you both so much for joining. If people want to find your podcast, where can they find it? Uh, you can find our podcast, Monster Donut, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. And you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at PJOPod. And you should definitely follow us because also um, Phoebe has not mentioned this, but she is an amazing artist and she posts a ton of really cool sketches and drawings of all the stuff we talk about in our episodes. And they're great. Everyone should look at them. They're amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's where I, I post the art that I create every week based on whatever book we're reading at the moment. And you can also find our individual social media as well as links to listen in the link tree on all of those social platforms, too. We are currently reading... Heroes of Olympus. Um, and we analyze one book per episode. So definitely a different vibe over there. A <laughs> little, little, uh, little faster pace. Yeah. So if you're one of the people that think I'm going too slow, go for these folks who are going at the fastest normal rate possible. <laughs> Would be wild if you're like, we discuss all the series in one episode. <laughs> That'd be a wild episode. Yeah. Our most recent one, though, was Phoebe actually did a full live reaction to the new book that just came out. So if you want to ah, check the that The Sun and out. the Star. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Cool. I it's a shame because I so want to read it, but I just know that I can't and I can't like follow any of these cool, fun book tour things that they're doing. And I've met Mark before at a convention. He's one of the nicest human beings on earth. So I'm just so happy for this like weird crossover thing. And uh, I just I, I can't know anything about it except I know Nico's in it. And that's it. That's like that's like where it starts. I'm like Nico's in it and someone else is in it. I don't know who the second person is at all. I don't even know their name. What's going on? Cool. I'll read this in 12 years. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious how long it'll take to get through Heroes of Olympus. Those books are chunky. Yeah, they're. I'm going to have to, I feel like I'm going to have to take uh, not as thorough notes or maybe I just have super good job security. We'll find out, but that's <laughs> for the future. Anyway, thank you 
both so much for joining thank listeners. You. Thank yeah, you for thank listening. You so much. Until we find out what is going on, where this closer entrance is. Until then, I'll see you later. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Newest Olympian. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Mike Schubert. I also run the social media and the website. Our editor is Sherry Guo. The music is by Bettina Kumpamanas and Brandon Google, and the art is by Jessica E. Boyd. If you want more TNO in your life, there's a couple different places you can find us. You can find us on social media. We're at Newest Olympian on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're on Reddit, reddit.com slash r slash The Newest Olympian. And then Patreon has a whole bunch of bonus content at The Newest Olympian.com slash Patreon. Speaking of the Patreon, I'm going to give a shout out to our producer level patrons, our members of the Olympic Court. Kelsey Gillespie, The Damn Steam Nuggets, Vicky Garcia, Ellie Hoskovchova, Veronica Bartova, Haley Hastings, Robin Garcia, Frida Vikstrom, Megan Moon, Craig McRoberts, Taylor Payne, Giselle Salvador, Peter Johnson, The Twins, Sabrina Balsiger, Bony Pony, Heather McMillan, Casey Williams, Polly Burridge, Nikki Harris, Tatiana Schmidt, Sandra Rose, Josh Sayer, Joshua Wilkie, Abby Ryan, Wise Girl, Ashton Gabrielson, Marco Redhouse, Caden Mack, Sam Sam Reby, Riley Kittes, Mary Kelly, Audra, Mrs. O'Leary, Rodith Kalma, Milo Kim, Fred Cabras, Harlan Christ, Cece Reads 23, Sandkopf, Julia Kendall, Emil Oscar Thomason, Liz Cardigan, Zachary Hamilton, Sarah Neal, Ricky, John Drillsma, Demigod Nurse, Rayla Matthews, Riley Draken, Lunica Dune, Sky Mallory, Elizabeth Obermiller, Aiden Parziani, Biggest Tyson Fan, Hunter Landstrom, Captain Jack Rackham, and Sky Captain and the Princess. If you want to help out the show in a non-monetary way, you can talk about the podcast. Word of mouth is so huge. Whether you tell someone directly, you know someone who is a PJO fan, or someone who's been looking for an excuse to read the books, you reach out, hey, there's this podcast, TNO, the newest Olympian, it's perfect, the host is great and also humble, you would love it, you should check it out. Or you can post about us on social media, or you can leave us a rating and review on whatever podcasting app you're using all of these things really help and if you do any of these things i am so so thankful and if you do them in the future thanks in the future but i'm just so thankful that you tuned into this episode and i hope you tuned into our next episode where we will continue the discussion of book five but this time we will be covering chapter seven of percy jackson and the last olympian with special guest nathan cox making his tno debut but until then i'll see you later Hey everyone, how's it going? It's me, ASMR Mix. So I'm here in the Shubio, and what I have in my hands right now is something that Kelly got me for my birthday one year that makes me very happy. It was something I mentioned one time wanting, and then years later she found it and gave it to me. It is a desktop stand-up man, so you know those wacky, waving, inflatable arm guys that you'll see outside of used car dealerships and stuff? It's a small desktop one. The fan on it is quite loud, and that is what will be our ASMR Mix segment for this episode. I know you can't see this, but doesn't it sound like so much fun? You can kind of hear it flopping around. Thank you for listening.